0: If you enjoy listening to clinical conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. My name is Dr. Johnny Bargett, and I am a TMC member. And today we're going to talk about Guillain Barre syndrome. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Gavin Langwitz. So, welcome, Gavin. Hi, Johnny. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on as one of our guests. So, for listeners who do not know, Gavin used to be on the Training Members Committee for the recipe. So, he's well first in the ways of the TMC life. So it's great to have you on the podcast and to talk to you about your specialty and probably one of the more important presentations in your specialty. So we're talking about Guillain-Barre syndrome and we're going to have a quick chat about what it is, when to suspect it, how to diagnose it, when to start treatment, when these patients should be admitted to levels of higher care, some complications that we're going to talk about that could happen, what kind of prognosis these patients have, and then we're going to touch on about predicting outcome and rehabilitation before we wrap things up. So Gavin, it's fantastic to talk about these really important presentations, and just so all listeners know, what is Guillain-Barré syndrome?
0: Thanks again, Johnny, thanks for the introduction. So Guillain-Barre syndrome, why, first of all, I mean, it's diagnosis that might often make it to your differential list when you're in acute setting units from time to time. And it's a label we certainly worry about as neurologists. It's one of the conditions that does cause us a degree of anxiety when we're called about. Why will patients candidate deteriorate very quickly? And often, early on, there's sometimes a degree of diagnostic uncertainty. So hopefully today, talking a bit about GBS can help some people. I guess about the disclaimer, I am no expert in this. a neurology trainee, having I mean, come across soloptin, I've been involved in the management of mild cases, to the more severe cases that we need up in intensive care, and so hopefully you can take me some general principles clinical tips today, and I'm very grateful to the support of the neuropathy team in Glasgow led by Dr. Katie Brennan and so briefly, Game Valley Syndrome what is it? So, it's probably an umbrella term if you like usually used to describe or associated at least with a post-infectious immune-mediated disorder and that results in a rapidly progressive polyneuropathy, so something affecting lots of nerves and nerve roots. It's commonly associated with infection, Campylobacter, degeny, and so a diarrheal illness. Typical GBS might present with progressive symmetrical ascending sensory motor paralysis. That was a lot of info there. So progressive symmetry is important in classic GBS, ascending, so starting at the feet and progressing more proximally, sensory motor involvement, so getting sensory symptoms and weakness, often with reflexes, absent or just reflexes, and it usually reaches its peak within four weeks, often within a couple of weeks, actually. And so that would be in a sort of couple of lines introduction, I think.
1: So we've already kind of described how patients present and alluded to what kind of neurological disorder it is. What is the official name for this type of polyneuropathy, Gavin, and what kind of types of Guillain-Barre polyneuropathy syndromes are there?
0: Yes, it can be confusing with all the terms that you might see thrown around and certainly all the abbreviations as well. So we like to think of it as GBS uses an umbrella term, and within that, there are a number of different phenotypes or presentations or GBS variants, if you want to call them that. So the big ones you might refer to would be AIDP. That's Acute Inflammatory Demyelinating Polyneuropathy. So we can come on a bit about what happens shortly, but it's a demyelinating presentation. And then the other end, you've got AMAN or AMSAN, so Acute Motor Axonal Neuropathy, so affecting the axon rather than the myelin, and then Acute Motor and Sensory Axonal Neuropathy. So those are maybe big ones. There are other presentations that I guess you would count in the spectrum of GBS. Another big one I'll mention here is probably Miller-Fisher syndrome. Folk will probably have come across that. Classically associated with ataxia, so poor coordination, reflexia, and an ophthalmoplegia. So that can be external or internal, actually. So external ophthalmoplegia, a limitation in your eye movements or internal failure of the pupils to accommodate or focus properly. And you can also get early facial weakness. So lower motor neuron facial weakness affecting the whole face, which can be bilateral and some things up involvement, so problems with your speech and swallowing in Miller-Fisher and some other types. So, GPS umbrella term, and just be aware that there are different presentations and names that come under that.
1: So it's good to get an idea about the different types and that's, that's been really useful just to get an insight into how these different types might present. And you've talked about how common it is. So roughly in terms of incidence and likelihood of it coming in the front door, how common is it as a presentation?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you see, a lifetime risk is quoted at one in a thousand. Incidence-wise, I think it gives rates of about sort of one to two per hundred thousand. I guess it's often on a differential because it's something that deteriorate very quickly, so you often have to think about it a lot more than you'll diagnose it. It can affect any age, but it's maybe more common as we get older. And it can affect males and females, but it's reported to affect men more commonly than women, so that gives you a rough idea, maybe.
1: So let's go back to the basics then. How does this ascending demyelinating polyneuropathy happen? And how does it affect the peripheral nerves? Kind of alluded to what happens, but just in terms of a general sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I don't think we fully understand the so pathophysiology, but if I give you a brief immunology thing, very basic from my point of view anyway. So if you remember what an epitope is, so that's part of an antigen to which an antibody attaches itself. And what we believe happens is certain infections that are associated with GBS, so like Campylobacter, they probably display ganglicide epitopes on the surface. So what then happens, so in GBS you get antibodies against ganglioside molecules. So what we think happens is then you get your humoral and cellular immune response, and unfortunately, as well as ganglicide antibodies, they then and then the bacteria or the infection, they then cross-react with the ganglicides on the nerve cells, if that makes sense. So a form of molecular mimicry, I think. In some, you can find antibodies against these ganglicides, but not in everyone. And I guess the big question is, why there's a loss of tolerance in some that results to damage and symptoms is not clear. Maybe a bit of a genetic predisposition, but we're not entirely sure there. Again, briefly here mentioned. mentioned Potential triggers that we believe might cause GBS. So you can maybe divide these into infectious triggers and non-infectious triggers. So infectious trigger, we've talked about Campylobacter. In reality, if you have Campylobacter, the risk of you getting GBS is still low. So reports vary between 1 in 1,000 up to 1 in 5,000. But there are some other infections that have shown an increased incidence of GBS. So, if you remember Zika virus in 2013 2015, that was associated with increased incidence of GBS. And I'll mention here COVID infection. The current UK consensus is that there's no evidence that COVID infection adds to the risk of GBS. But then, if we come to non infectious triggers like vaccinations, now this has been studied for a long time. I think back in the 1970s, in the US, there was an influenza or swine flu vaccination program that led to an increase in GBS cases that were identified, so five to six extra cases of GBS per million vaccines given. There's been a few studies since that's shown a relationship between GBS and flu vaccines. These studies have suggested an increase of maybe one to two additional GBS cases per one million vaccinations. And so we're all thinking, well, what about the COVID vaccine? So current understanding, and I guess this is an evolving still in really new fields, but our current understanding is the first dose of AstraZeneca vaccine conferred maybe an extra risk of maybe about six extra GBS cases per million vaccinated, but the others did come with that risk. And in terms of the period that we might count as, could the vaccine be causal rather than a temporal association? And that fine period in studies tends to be up to six weeks. So if you have a vaccine and then symptoms present, come you present within six weeks we might link the two together
1: well that's really interesting i think it's important for listeners to know that obviously you know there is evidence out there that we can use when we're talking about vaccines with patients so that's really helpful i guess just going back to a basic level we've talked about what the peripheral nerves involved can be but just for the listeners so we have a range of levels of listeners what do the peripheral nerves do in normality i always think in the neurological exam we talk about testing fine touch sharp touch perception temperature, so maybe we could talk about that, and then how does that get affected when demyelination happens?
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's a good question. So I think I need like to keep things fairly basic for myself, so very basic level, I guess the nerves, they're just part of the pathway in sending signals from your spinal cord eventually to your muscle via your neuromuscular junction. And nerves can provide sensation, as you talked about, the different modes of sensation there. Or they can provide movement, depending on what it innervates. I guess how the nerves are affected depends on the subtypes that we've talked about. So AIDP, it's a demyelinating form, so it affects the myelin sheath. And then you get abnormal sensation or abnormal weakness, depending on what nerves are involved. But then in Eman, for example, that's acute motor axonal neuropathy. If you remember, your nerve sort of axon in the middle and then the myelin sheaths surrounding it, so AMAN involves the axon in the middle. Again, you can get, so on AMAN it would just be purely motor symptoms, but on AMSAN you can get motor and sensory symptoms. So I guess what I'm saying here is, depending on if it's AIDP or AMSAN, the variants might look clinically very similar, but it's only really when you test the arrows and those nerve conduction studies that you might pick out different subtypes here. But you're right in saying in terms of what we do in examination, do your, say, power assessments. And in terms of sensation testing, we'd always at least say do pinprick and vibration, probably also appropriate section in there as well to try and pick up maybe some of the different sensory modalities that, that get lost.
1: So, talk about the peripheral nerves there, we touched on autonomic nervous system involvement and cranial nerves, which is obviously quite a worrying feature if coming across people with those signs. What kind of signs do we see and how does that occur?
0: Yeah, no, that's quite important. That actually, so in terms of autonomic nervous system involvement, you can actually get cardiac arrhythmias and certainly heart rate fluctuations and blood pressure instability. And so, if you do spot that in your observation charts, then ideally speaking to sort of at least high dependency units for telemetry and blood pressure monitoring. It can also upset your bowel and bladder function, and also sort of papillary dysfunction. It is worth noting down the trains and your blood pressure and heart rates, asking about dizziness or palpitations, as well as asking about your bowel activity and recovering this on a bedside Sight stool chart and asking about it regularly. There's lots of autonomic involvement early, maybe an early prompt to critical care environment, they might need sort of stronger medications and something as simple as laxatives might avoid, sort of profound delirium that can happen in some of these patients.
1: So I'd like to ask you about how someone might present and how you might suspect it. So often the first symptoms
0: are sensory, often starts in the legs, often distally. So patients might complain of burning pain or pins and needles, but don't be put off by other pains, so often patients can describe sharp pains. Some can even have back pain. Of course, it makes you maybe think about little things, but people can have quite a lot of pain here. They can also present with cranial nerve involvement. So that might be a facial weakness, it might be speech or swallowing symptoms, so the verbal weakness, or it might be part of an ophthalmoplegia. And then, I guess, some things more rarely, patients can present with this sort of autonomic disturbance that we've talked about already. So, there are a number of presentations to think about there. In terms of examination, a important note is it can often be normal early. Even your reflexes can be retained early, and actually, more confusingly, your reflexes can actually be brisk in some patients. So, of course, if you find this, you would look for an alternative diagnosis. So, brisk reflexes, up motion, you're saying we think that would be spinal cord or brain. So, you might think about pathologies there. Just something to to keep in mind. The clinical course can vary peak can be reached in a few days, but also can be reached up to a few weeks. And so just being aware of the varied presentations, I think is a helpful take-home point here.
1: I guess one of the things is it's all about the history, isn't it? And whenever you're assessing them, it's just a snapshot in their journey or their clinical course. Is there anything that would raise alarm bells that would maybe make you think that it wasn't DBS
0: Oh, absolutely, and I think emphasizing the history is, is a really good one. In terms of some red flags, there are lots of lists that you can look for. I think a few that would stick in the top of my mind would be if it's persistently asymmetric. That's a bit odd for GBNs; it's usually a symmetrical progressive condition, so that might make you think about other things. If there's bowel and bladder involvement, so your retention, for example, gain, that's odd, there's a sensory level. So, if you sort of take your pin, run it up the leg into the trunk, and there's a clear defined level again, that's odd. So, these things might make you think about a spinal lesion of some form.
1: What we're wanting to run on to now is how we diagnose it. And I guess if I'm seeing someone who I think has GBS, I'm probably going to be picking up the phone to you, the neurologist. But with regards to the tests, perhaps we could talk about lumbar puncture and. Electrophysiology test. I probably wouldn't request these things unless I've spoken to you. What do you think?
0: Yeah, you'll see so many more patients at the front door. This might cross your mind early. So, I guess things stay across. So, a diagnosis of GBS really based on your story, examination, and some supporting tests often takes good mimics that we talked about. And the test initially you might think about a blood tests as well as a lumbar puncture. But you can do neurophysiology, and we could talk briefly about that. So what would I do if I truly think someone's got GVS from front door? I would always do basic blood, so infection markers, liver and renal function, bone, magnesium, that sort of thing. We will always advise to do immunoglobulins and often mark these as urgent. Why? So rarely patients can have an IgA deficiency where they have an allergic reaction, which can be an anaphylaxis, on receiving intravenous immunoglobulin, which is one of the treatments in GVS that we can talk about and so if you detect this IGA deficiency low early on, it often wants further discussion. So often you might then speak to ourselves or you might speak to pharmacy, maybe to consider some pre-meds before IVIG. Or you might consider the other treatment that we use, plasma exchange. So that's why we advise sending those ganglicide antibodies so it takes some time to return. So you're not going to get result before you start treating. And if they're negative, remember we we'll only test for a handful of ganglic antibodies, so it doesn't exclude the diagnosis of GBS negative. Although specific results can be helpful. So anti gq one b for example, is positive in over ninety percent of cases with Miller Fisher syndrome. So it's helpful when you see it. A few extra blood tests before giving IDNG, so blood product, we usually send blood for HIV, DIP B, hip C. I'm in the habit of always doing syphilis for these three as well. And then basically other neuropathy, basic neuropathy blood tests, so nhba one c TFTs, B12 and folates, ESR, and then your protein electrophoresis, serum 3 light chains, and your brain protein. And those are probably the sets of blood tests that I would probably advise if I truly thought someone in GBS. Given we've talked about often they have a preceding diarrheal illness, obviously if there's anything infected try and culture it, so if someone has diarrhea, yeah. what I was taught was to try and get stool cultures from sort of three separate samples, sending yeah. them to try and capture an organism. Other tests, we might advise spinal imaging first, if there's a suggestion of some of the red flags we talked about that are promoting urine signs, but in other cases we might just go straight for lumbar puncture. But always remember, if we advise lumbar puncture, do you remember and check the sort of contraindications locally if someone's on anticoagulation or and those sorts of things. And in terms of what we look for on CSF, so often in GBS you'll have a raised protein from the, the leaky blood-brain barrier, but it can be normal in the first week or in some variants and usually paired with a normal white cell count. So this is what we refer to as an albumin of cytologic dissociation, basically high protein, no cells. And we've talked about you can accept up to a few cells, but it might make you think about other things. So when you do the lumbar puncture, that's often a common call we get. What do we do? So always would say opening pressure, so left lateral position to get that. A cell count, a protein, glucose, and oligoclonal bands. And it's important to then do a blood sample after your LP for the same glucose and oligoclonal bands, paired samples. So CSF and blood needs to be taken at the same time to compare the results. And I usually say, take an extra bottle. Most labs are happy to freeze a bottle if you call them in advance because often we'll go back and ask to add on extra things so it's nice to have that extra one. And then I guess lastly, nerve conduction studies you mentioned so we might advise that early on but it's always worth discussing with us because they can often be normal in the first few days of an illness and they might not necessarily even be required if it's sort of a classical story but when we do do it, you might see that sort of patchy segmental demelination we talked about in the IDP, but you can get the purely axonal forms as well as damage to the axon.
1: So before we talk about treatment, how do we assess these patients if we think that they're having any bulbar dysfunction or any respiratory compromise, you know, really prompting about an ICU referral? That's a really
0: important aspect. So we're always going to advise respiratory and swallow monitoring, so respiratory monitoring usually. We say force rate capacities, although I think in the instance of COVID we don't really do that, so it tends to be single breath count that we'll advise. And then maybe just explain what that is, because I've often turned up and people have been doing sort of breath holding in at various variations. So single breath count is basically when you ask the patient to take a deep breath in and then exhale. When they exhale, they count from zero up to as high as they can get in one breath. So if I just give you an example on the call, obviously you can't see me, but one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, etc., etc. As high as they go in one breath. And the absolute number isn't that important, but it's more the trend over time. And so if you're regularly doing that, like a nurse or a nursing team that are regularly checking single breath counts, it's persistently going down day to day, that might be an early prompt to speak to sort of high dependency after a blood gas. If patients becoming more drowsy they're becoming quieter in their speech and again, low threshold to do that An EBG looking for the rise in CO2 and prompt critical care assessment. Just to know that your standard checks, so asking if someone's breathless or checking someone's observations, they don't tend to go or certainly they'll last to go if someone's got neuromuscular despair 2 weakness. So it's important that you know about other things to monitor. In terms of other things that might prompt referral to critical care, so talked about breathing, if someone has marked swallowing impairment, Again, if someone has autonomic concerns again to flag up, and if someone's progressing very rapidly in terms of weakness, that would be another reason. It might involve critical care early. It's important to say maybe 20 to 25 percent of patients do end up intubated, so it is important that you monitor those things.
1: That's really useful, and I'm sure we'll be able to signpost that to our listeners. You talked about intravenous, immunoglobulin, and plasma exchange. I guess anybody who's used to prescribing intravenous immunoglobulin, we know how uh, time-consuming it is to do that. What's your advice on when these treatments should start and, and how they should be delivered and I guess leading on to how people respond to it and how quickly?
0: Yeah, good, good questions and it is difficult. And I guess just generally on management, I just would want to highlight the simple things not to forget that can often make the biggest difference. So we talked about monitoring, breathing, and swallowing. Often making sure someone's got an ECG or at least cardiac monitoring if you're worried. Don't forget DBT prophylaxis, both because I think it's prothrombotic but also because I'm not going to be mobile. Good skin care, fluid balance, nutrition, watching the electrolytes, managing someone's pain, we're good with neuropathic painkillers, making sure someone's bowels are moving, we've got laxatives, and I guess looking out for their mood. Patients can become really low in mood, so remembering all those things that are really important here. So general principles, if someone's still able to walk, or they're stable, or they're only slowly deteriorating, then usually we won't advise IVIG or plasma exchange. In the situation that or within four weeks of the onset of the symptoms, and someone's unable to walk, or rapidly deteriorating, or swallowing problems, or autonomic instability, often then will advise IVIG or plasma exchange. And it's one or the other, and they're both said to be equal. In the real world, IVIG is probably easier practically to get. Plasma exchange, often you'll then have to raise with your plasma free team via haematology and get central lines and all that sort of thing. So IVIG is maybe easier to get, but it doesn't come without risk. So, before I give IVIG, I usually speak to the family patient, so there's always a risk of anaphylaxis. Patients can get milder reactions like a rash, can feel a bit flu-like, get a bit of a headache, and it can upset your liver and kidney function, so it's important to monitor these, and it's, it can upset the blood pressure, and it's prothrombotic. so DVT prophylaxis. In terms of what we give, so it's 2 grams per kilogram total dose over 5 days. So, if I give you an example, the 70 kilogram person, that would be 2 grams per kilogram. So, that's 140 grams over the five days. So, you divide that 140 by 5. So, that doesn't go nicely. So, you would maybe give 30 grams D1, 2, and 3, 25 grams D4 and 5. So, that's a sort of example there. I actually had to read about this because I hadn't come across it, a we note. Just for pregnant patients, IVIG or plasma exchange isn't contraindicated during pregnancy, but you have to see, albeit there's no randomised controlled trial that's looked at this, so it's worth a discussion first. Plasma exchange comes with all the additional considerations, so you might think about IVIG in that situation.
1: That's really useful and just practical tips. So how will we know whether the treatment's working? we talked about the you know the things that we're monitoring. What do you look at when we're giving treatments and how quickly might patients respond?
0: There's various things they can monitor and there's various ways they can respond. So patients can improve, stabilize, or they can worsen, broadly speaking. And I guess an important concept to think about here would be something called a treatment related fluctuation. So that's maybe something more for sort of the neurologist that following up cases longer term, but I think it's important point to mention because it is difficult. So a treatment-related fluctuation can happen in maybe sort of 5 to 10% of patients with GPS. And that's where patients improve or at least stabilise after treatment, so IVIG or plasma exchange, for a period of about one week. But then the more time elapses, it can get worse again as long as that's within a sort of two-month period. If it's beyond this, it then becomes something else. So if they have that sort of fluctuation, there's evidence that you would then give a repeat IDIG or plasma exchange. Whereas in the patients that don't respond to that initial treatment and continue to decline, then there's actually some data to, to suggest that having actually giving a repeat treatment can be harmful. So obviously it can involve lots of colleagues and team members to discuss this sort of thing. But that's the sort of principle of treatment-related fluctuation. Longer term, I mentioned sort of the beyond two months, so case that presents like GBS continues to progress after about eight weeks, or they have multiple fluctuations or three or four treatment-related fluctuations, then you might consider a different condition, CIDP, so Chronic Inflammatory demyelinating Polyneuropathy. So it looks the same as GBS often early on, but over time, the management is going to be different. And I guess the last concept to think about here is recurrent GBS over time, so that is very, very rare. And it does happen, but very rare. Usually it's associated with being a model-physic illness, so just happening sort of in that one episode. Four big things that we are mainly monitor. we've talked about some of them, so the breathing, so single breath counts, and the other things, the swallowing, the autonomic side of things, and then what we call your MRC sum scores. So that's a sort of selected group of power assessments to have some sort of objective power assessment that's continually monitored over time. So the MRC sum, just very briefly, the so MRC power scale from zero to five, five being normal power, zero, no movement. And the MRC sum, what that does is it takes three movements in the upper limb, voluntary, three movements in the lower limb. It's all the anti-gravity movements to try and avoid different variations and in interpretations. So the movements are used at shoulder abduction, elbow flexion, wrist extension, and in the legs, hip flexion, knee extension, and ankle lower safe flexion. And you basically just do your normal power assessment, total the score, and then we tend to monitor patients at least twice a week. And it gives you some sort of objective additional marker to monitor over time. There are some monitoring scores that you can use to predict outcomes. So there's another Erasmus version, modified Erasmus GPS outcome score. And that's said to predict the risk of being unable to walk independently at four weeks, three months, six months. and So you tend to give them a score. You can look up the actual calculation it's quite straightforward. You do the score usually in hospital admission and then on day seven of admission. So these are some of the monitoring things we'll look at and trying to avoid some of the complications there that we we'll talked about.
1: So I guess the thing that you're highlighting is that we really need to be able to assess our outcomes and give patients an idea or a realistic expectation of what might happen in the next days, the next weeks, the next months and the years to come. What are your experiences of what outcomes patients might experience in their hospital admission and down and in the community when they go through rehab?
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And patients do ask these questions and I often say to folk we expect this might get worse before it gets better. If they ask about recovery, often you have to judge it in the situation. You don't want to hit them with sort of really bad news early on and often we don't know it. But often patients can be in hospital for weeks, if not months, and it can be a long recovery. And sometimes having that early discussion, to an extent, is important in some cases. You see up to about a third of patients can have significant disability at the end of all this. But on the positive spin, 60-80% to of patients reportedly are able to walk independently at six months. And there is still recovery that's detected three, four, five years down the line, albeit most of the recoveries in that first year. So those would be some of the things that I might talk about with patients. And again, even despite all the best care and management, patients do complain of sort of prolonged fatigue or pain or paresthesia longer term. So these are things that you might have to try and manage through symptom control management, whether it's analgesia or working on the mood, etc. Yeah,
1: we've covered so much and it's been an absolute pleasure to learn about the syndrome from you in more detail. Going through what we've talked about, I think there are a number of things I've picked up on and we about the history and how different presentations can occur and, and the key things to look out for and, and potentially look forward to make you sway away from the diagnosis. What would your take home points be for our listeners tonight?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully there's been some practical points in there, but it's definitely one of those conditions that really weren't called about in neurology because patients can deteriorate very quickly, and so often examining someone early before they deteriorate can really help guide your management. So don't hesitate to call us if you're worried about someone with GBS. We've said it can present a number of different ways, which is an important point. We've talked about some basic bloods, immunoglobulins, and lumbar puncture, and I guess the principle of treatment options, when to treat, when something's a treatment-related fluctuation, and when it's not, not forgetting the sort of other good management steps. And then the last take on my guess would be remembering the monitoring things we talked about, and particularly respiratory monitoring and solar monitoring.
1: Great stuff, Gavin. That was absolute pleasure. So to our listeners, thank you for listening, and please leave your feedback for Dr. Langs. And to you, Gavin, thank you so much for this run-through of Guillain-Barre syndrome.
0: No pleasure, Johnny. Thanks very much. Thanks for asking.